into, at least from those that I know, into a similar direction. Um, and that's quite interesting if you then see how many different concepts emerged over the last couple of months or years yeah. that are um, um, helping people to get onboarded into these principles and frameworks. That's quite yeah. interesting. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you were thinking ahead of the show because we are actually live on the show. So now we're going to take all of your thoughts and we're going to put them out there into the world. So welcome, everybody, to another Scale Up Valley Heroes podcast. And we're not only talking about scaling engineering, we're talking about software engineering practices. And this yellow piece of paper will be filled with all kinds of things that these gentlemen say here today, because we're going to pull out the best, the brightest, the, um, the elements that maybe people won't necessarily share with you but we're going to share publicly here in front of everybody. You can check out all of these episodes and more at scaleupvalley.com. Now, my name is Ryan Fallen. I travel the world speaking about simplicity, and therefore, I will most likely pop in a few simple questions that are very difficult to answer. That's one of my favorite things to do. But Pedro, I'm going to let you take it as I listen in and chirp in to find out some more um, insights and tips and tricks when it comes to software engineering practices. Full disclaimer, I'm not a coder. I'm a talker but I'm going to see where those two worlds connect. Pedro, you have the mic. Thank you so much, Ryan. So hi, everyone. Welcome to today's show. So my name is Pedro. I'm an engineering director at uh, TalkDesk. And if you don't know, TalkDesk is a contact center as a service. And it's been quite exciting working here since we have now reached the, the unicorn milestone. And as a matter of fact, actually, we are <laughs> we are customers of Pusher, so we are using Pusher, which is something very, very, very funny. Um, cool, but this is today is definitely not about me. So this is about uh, software engineering practices, just like Ryan said. We today we had David, I have some Pusher, and we also have Dennis Winter from Solaris Bank. Um, so Dennis, do, do you mind uh, presenting yourself to to everyone that's listening to us? Uh, mainly, you know. So what's your responsibility at, at Solaris Bank? And you know, what, uh, what's the size of your team so that people can, that are listening to us can actually kind of relate more or less with you, please? Yes, sure. Uh, first, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Dennis Winter and I'm engineering manager at the moment at Solaris Bank. Um, Solaris Bank is a technology company with banking license. So basically we are offering APIs uh, to our partners. We do business to business. Um, so they can use our functionalities, they can leverage actually our banking license to um, add functionality that is uh, from the financial field to their products. So they do their business cases and they are using our functionalities in the back. <clears throat> I myself started at Solaris Bank in uh, 2016 as a platform engineer. I, have, um, I started in engineering in the year 2000 as software engineer and then went into systems engineering. And over the last three years, which was quite a ride at Solaris Bank, I joined at employee number 30, and now we are 200 and rough, roughly 230 people uh, with 80 to 85 engineers, I'm entirely sure oh, the number nice. right now, and roughly 20 people in, engineer, uh, in, in, in product, product owners. Yep. Um, the responsibilities that I have right now is I'm responsible for the um, platform teams. We have three teams. That is, one is the infrastructure platform team. Another one is the utility platform team. They are implementing Go services, um, um, services that we implement to not reinvent the wheel in all our product teams. So something like a central email gateway, for example, or the central proxy that sits in front of our services uh, that we are exposing to our, uh, for our partners. 
And the core banking team, they are some kind of an abstraction layer, also a go team um, towards our third party regulatory core banking provider. Now, my responsibility is then to make sure that these people are happy and that uh, they know what to do and uh, where the priorities are in terms of company goals. Okay, very well, very well. Thank you so much for that. Uh, David, go ahead, please. Yeah, right, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm David Ives, I'm an engineering manager at Pusher. We're based in the UK. Uh, we provide real-time APIs for you know companies of all sizes, um, single developers right up to enterprise solutions. Uh, what we basically do is we take the heavy lifting out of real time. So we allow anybody to utilize our services with one single API that they can then build multiple products on top of whatever they need to do to make their business a success. We have other products as well that uh, specialize so we provide a chat service called ChatKit, which is our newest release. Uh, we provide Beams, which is our app notification service. All of these products are incredibly simple to use. It's like one line of code to pull the API in, and then you can just build on top of them. So we can take a scale from anything from 10 users up to literally billions of messages an hour. We can, we can take anything that you can throw at us. Um, the engineering team is about 50% of Pusher at the moment. So we've got about 35 engineers. Um, so we, we spread cross-functional teams, but we've also got individual product teams. So there's there's three individual products at the moment. I run two of those, which is Channels and Beams. We've got the Chat Kit team as well, but then we've also got a dedicated platform team that they're split in two. Um, they look after all of the infrastructure that all of the products run on top of, which gives us our own in-house service that allows us to just spin up new products really, really quickly and, and test them out before we release them to the public. Um, my responsibility is to work alongside the product team and make sure that I represent the team within the conversation. So we have the product pushing for the customers and I represent the team and make sure that we're sort of meeting somewhere in the middle that we've got a, a really clear understanding about where the products need to go and what the customers actually want. And then we're actually supporting not only the, the, the product itself from internal, but I'm, I'm there to make sure that there's growth for everybody that's in the team and that they've actually got direction in their career as well. Cool, cool. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for that. <clears throat> so today we're talking about engineering practices. So I think that these engineering practices, at least kind of what I've seen, is something that usually kind of starts on day one. But thinking about all the range and all possibilities that we can have in place, uh, some of them are actually kind of, they just appear a little bit further down the road. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know uh, who would like to start, uh, if maybe you, David, again. Um, so. Regarding uh, engineering practices, at least when every time I talk about it, usually extreme programming comes to my mind. Um, although I know that not everyone follows extreme programming since it's quite, it's quite thorough uh, and not that easy to, to implement by 100%. So thinking about Pusher, where are you in terms of engineering practices? What are the ones that you are using and why? What's your favorites? I mean, what we try to do is each, each product team has got quite a lot of... Um, a lot of flexibility in what they actually take up. We don't have a top-down approach of these are the methods and these are the sort of theories that we're going to use. Um, each, each product team that we have has kind of its own personality, which allows it to mold and the team operate in a certain way. With that said, there are certain things that have always risen to the top anyway. So pair programming is something that we're, we're really, really big on. Um, it's it's incredibly useful for getting people out of that, that blind alley where they're starting to get to the point where they're, they're stuck and they're going around in circles. But it also allows a lot more shared ownership 
of the, the product and it allows the accountability to be a little bit more spread. I mean, we found recently that we, we noticed looking at the stats that one of our bottlenecks in our iterations was the, was the review process. Um, you know, someone would take something from the backlog, they'd, they, they'd push it for review. They may be waiting a couple of hours for a review. So they take something else from the backlog. And then we had people with like two or three things in progress. So the way that we found to get around this and what's been particularly useful for us is if, if the comment on the pull request is going to be more than three lines, they grab that person, they go into an engineering pod, the two of them, and rather than, rather than ask, you know, what's your review of it, they'll actually go through the problem together and get a full understanding of what it was that they were trying to solve. And then that pairing becomes quite sort of organic and they've worked on that together. And we found that this has really speeded up the process a huge amount, but it's actually, it's shared so much knowledge and so much empathy throughout the team, rather than they're having like one tech lead or sit at the top of the pyramid that's reviewing everybody's code. It's much more shared now. That's the kind of, the kind of ethos that we have is to try and be as flexible and inclusive as we possibly can. And this is something that we're trying out now, but it seems to be really, really working for us. Great, great. What about Solaris Bank, Dennis? Uh, I see certain similarities um, and then uh, also not again, because um, we also have cross-functional teams. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we started with implementing a monolith and as we are talking about scaling out, um, we onboarded very quickly new engineers in a very short period of time uh, in, from, from mid-2016 on uh, for one and a half years. And at the same time, we had to improve the whole onboarding process and make sure that uh, we have enough product people in there who are actually familiar with um, agile mythology, agile mythologies. So what I don't think is something that, um, well, we don't do it. And I also wouldn't think that it would be a good idea is that we are striving for 100% do it this method or 100% implement this way of doing things. Um, we have those cross-functional teams. We have five business units. We have five products on the market. And um, we have a team of agile coaches that goes from unit to unit um, and helps them finding their way of um, working um, uh, so that it really fits their needs. Um, it's always agile. It's always some, some kind of scrumish. It, uh, the difference between um, many products that I've been uh, involved in implementing so far and Solaris Bank is that um, the scope of functionalities that you have in banking is well known. It's a lot. Uh, if you think about, if I think about banking, uh, it seems like it's not many things that you need to think of, but on the contrary, uh, there, there are many details that you have to take into account. And so um, the whole thing of uh, um, um, collaborating with your with your customer closely and make sure that you are delivering the next it, the next iteration um, something that the customer can use is something that um, we need to do internally um, because most of our customers out there don't know what is necessary for doing banking business so we need to tell them but what we need to do is usually to make sure that um, we have a, a clear priority on, on our roadmaps um, that fits to the income of partners that we have. And um, uh, on top of that, make sure that the teams know what to do next, like how does the roadmap look like and the whole um, engineering practices in terms of collaboration. 
um, we need to make sure that there are pull requests in place. We need to make sure that um, we have those approvals by teams from by people from the same teams, and we have a, a well quite sophisticated release process uh, that we also need to put into that we also had to put into place for for re regulatory reasons. Uh -huh. And um, what we learned there was, or what what our goal was, and what we did so far was that we were able to do this on a technical level to let's say 95%. So we are involving our CI system, we are involving JIRA to make sure that we have approvals uh, um, in, in, in the development pipeline and in, in, in the deployment pipeline in place uh, that in other companies, in other banks probably, in more traditional banks would be more um, paper sheets or something like this. Cool. Very well. You know, <clears throat> that's actually something that, so that you've been mentioning. Um, so both of you, and I actually resonate a lot with that. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, um, giving autonomy to to the teams to decide uh, which which practices they want to to use. Um, also, although I, I actually believe that we should have some sort of, you know, kind of like a, a bare minimum or a Definitely. a a starting point, you know, let's say for just like you mentioned, okay, so pull requests are not, are not negotiable, okay? So that's something that we believe that we should do. Um, I've heard already CICD, for instance, so there are a lot of things that we also believe. So each team is quite autonomous to decide on which practices they that they want. Although there is actually one that I that I, that I'm, that I truly love, uh, and that's the pair programming one. Um, I had the, the the I was fortunate enough to work on an environment that we actually kind of tried to 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 push for uh, extreme programming adoption as much as possible, um, and obviously so we had pair programming. We know, let's say. We were six engineers, only with three workstations. Uh, you know, they were pretty much fully prepared to to pair, uh, and that to, to me it was like pretty much like the the best the best thing uh, uh, out there in terms of you know of everything quality, shipping stuff into production, um, everything. Um, and now that we're talking about pairing, and I don't know, I, again, if it is in your current company or just like, a, you know, on the previous experience, um, one thing that I believe is that, well, when you do pair programming, to me, pretty much, you're already kind of code reviewing as you go. And why is that? Because so you have one software engineer doing the code and you have someone else right in, next to him. That's what we usually call the navigator. That is someone that is kind of driving the, 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 so the other software engineer or asking the right questions. Uh, so I, I'm actually a firm believer that when you're pairing, you don't need the pull requests because you're already doing some sort of code review as you go. Um, although I know that this is pretty much not a consensual uh, opinion because even when you're pairing, some teams actually believe that they should have pull requests, which usually tends to lead to, to bottlenecks. And that was something, for instance, that David talked about, you know, the importance of pushing stuff into production as, as soon as possible and, and very effectively. Um, David, what's your opinion? So when you have engineers pairing, do you still uh, like them to use a pull request and grab opinion of more engineers or you're just more than fine with two set of eyes and you just uh, you just go ahead and you merge your code? As, as with most things, I think it depends. Generally, if there are two people pairing, then that is, that's enough. Um, it depends on the complexity and the severity of the actual piece of work that they're on. If it's something that is you know, a huge break in change, then the TL will actually look at this. They, they will go through it and they will run an eye, but that isn't written in stone. That's very much, you know, to keep us fluid and to keep us agile. If two people have spent a whole afternoon working on part of a library, 
and they're happy with it. A technical lead is only going to look at that and ask them the question whether they're happy anyway. So that that becomes the bottleneck at that point. We're we're very very happy for that to go straight into production at that point. You know, two people are there, the, the tests are passing, the build is passing, everything on staging is working fine. Then this is good. You know, we're we're going to declare this a win. We can push this out to production. So it works for that one. <laughs> great, great. Uh, what about you, Dennis? Do you have an opinion on this? Um, I think uh, well. At Solaris Bank, we need the formal approval, but personally, I would think that um, I have enough trust to to the engineers in my teams that if they are pairing and if they are working together on on, on a certain feature, um, that is that they come up with a good solution uh, applied to four eyes principle, and so it would be more like the formal process of one of them, for example, approving these change then as well, uh, which should be totally enough from my point of view. Good. Good, very well. Um, so I think that's also one of the benefits that we already talked about here of having the right engineering practice in place was about ownership, right? So we have more people, you know, touching on, on the same code base and and having much more collaboration. Uh, and, and at least I, I totally agree that ownership is one of the main benefits of having engineering practices in place. Um, so besides ownership, what other benefits have we seen uh, that these practices um, tend to lead to? Um, Dennis, do you want to, to, to give your opinion on that, on what are the benefits? Um, transparency. Um, at first, well, this is something that I, that I uh, find it nearly invaluable. If you don't have it, you have no idea what, where you could improve. And um, also the teams themselves, you know, um, this notion of self-effectiveness so that you can see that what you're doing is actually having an impact also on the people around you, also on your peers. That is something that I find very valuable in, in, in engineering practices, that it allows you to not only look at the outcomes of your, of your work or of the team's work, but also on the way on how you work together. And um, I think this is something that then might create a lot of ownership or the sense of ownership in a feeling uh, in, a, in a team, sorry. Absolutely. What about you, David? Yeah, I completely agree with Dennis. I think the, the important things are, you know, breaking out of any, any concept of anything being somebody else's problem. And, and the best way that we found to do that is the fact that, you know, this, this is a joint effort from day one on everything. Um, so everybody really has to have some understanding about how a fairly complex system hangs together. There's, it's a much better opportunity for people's growth as well. I've, I've seen in other organizations where somebody becomes the, the owner of one part of a system and it's, that's theirs then forever and nobody else wants to touch it. And that puts a very real ceiling on their career growth because we can't ever, that person can't move past that because there's no one else that can actually sort of take up the reins of that part for them but yeah. I think also it's, it's very much a, you know the whole thing is a team unit and it, you know if, if we have an incident the first thing that needs to happen is everybody jumps on that incident and they try to work out the best way to fix it and that's never going to happen if people are able to look at something and say well I've never worked on this so it's nothing to do with me that that starts to get into that blame culture whereas this is everybody's had something to do with everything which means that, that that sense of ownership is very much shared across the whole team. It also allows people to move laterally between different product teams within the company as well, which has been really good. You know, we can allow people to 
maybe be seconded out for a short period of time on something on a special project, or maybe if there's just extra stress on one team, but it means that people are much freer. Uh, and there's, there's more of a sense of, of unity across the entire company rather than just, you know, even worse than it being one component's problem, it's one product's problem. And I'm not part of that product. So, you know, that's what's actually holding us back. So this way we push together forward. No, absolutely. No, I and usually make probably, a, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Dennis. Just probably to, to add to this, I think um, if you allow people to understand how things are connected, uh, this allows them to have way more impact than what probably the people who put them into certain teams and said oh, that this is the area, this is where we need you right now. Um, this this allows for way more flexibility and um, to to um, um, allow people to grow into areas where it wasn't probably considered. You know, I mean, uh, they might have interest in certain areas and understand the problem way better than someone else who deals with a certain within a certain area with this problem on a daily basis. So there is a lot of things that you can draw from this if you have a lot of transparency, if you have this openness within an engineering or a product teams overall or within a company, uh, which also leads me usually to the, to the, to the idea of why not um, talking about things openly that go wrong uh, um, during a company all hands or something like this, just ah. to make sure that uh, we, we value also our failures and we use it to learn from it. And uh, then you also get around or uh, you, you uh, uh, prevent probably such a blaming culture that, that, that David mentioned earlier. Yeah, we, we will always have, after any incident, you know, the one of the, like I said, you know, the first, the priority is obviously resume normal service for the customers. But yeah. then the incident report gets created. And that incident report is like fully available within the company for exactly those reasons that if we have found that there was something that, if, if, we, if we made a mistake in one product, then hopefully all of the other product teams can learn from that mistake and not make the same mistake again. And this goes back to the fact that we, we like people to move from team to team because they're taking that knowledge and it's, it's amplified every time that they go somewhere else. So some of those methods and some of those techniques that you use in team A, if you do go to work in team B, you bring some of the good stuff with you. And then you take some of that good stuff back to the other team as well. So we're, you know, we're, we're raising the bar all the way through. And that only happens with collaboration and transparency, as Dennis said. So David, I've got a question for you when it comes to this bar that you've raised, but when you have new employees coming in and new engineers on the team, are there specific ways that you're creating the culture that it's okay to share things that don't go wrong? And I'm assuming that small things go wrong before big things go wrong. So from a cultural aspect, how do you implement that type of warm and fuzzy feeling about the failure? Uh, are there trainings that they go through? Do you give examples of what happened in the past? But I believe we're on the same page about the transparency of failure. But how do you convince early people who just want to come in and be like, I'm going to crush it. Uh, but you're like, it's okay. If it gets crushed, here's what you do. Like, I I'm curious that conversation that you have. I think it's because we're, we're able to have those conversations really early. So every day in stand-up, it's, it, it's very front and center. Is there any issues that anyone's had? And is there anything that they, they want to bring up that they're, that they're struggling with? And it's made very, very clear. You know, one of our values of the company, which is on the wall, right in the middle of the building, is no bullshit. And that goes for everything. And it really is the fact that, you know, we try to instill in everyone, if you make a mistake, put your hand up, let's fix the mistake as quickly as we can. We will have a retrospective about it, but it is going to be a blameless retros retrospective. I, I don't 
care whose problem it is. What I'm more interested in is how did we get to that position? That that old story of someone, you know, the, the intern goes in and on day one, they drop the production database. Now, my question isn't, why did you drop the database? My question would be, how have we put someone in a position where they can actually drop a, a, a database that easily? You know, what do we have to do to make this better and what can we learn from it? And it is, it is difficult to instill that in people, but it's, it's got to be there for our culture. It's got to be part of how we survive. We can't, we can't grow and we can't scale if, if people aren't willing to take risks. You know, that, that's how we get the company to what it is. And we have good build process. We have good tests. If something goes into production and it breaks, we can roll it back really, really quickly. It's not an issue. The communication is the key there. We make sure that we communicate with the customers first and foremost to let them know. That takes the pressure off the engineering team then that they're not trying to fix something before someone finds out. We, we can okay. go out there and we can be honest about what we're doing and then that gives people the space to, to fix an issue and then we can look at it afterwards. Well, I've got a new, uh, a new order that's going to go into printsigns.com. I'm just going to put a big no bullshit uh, on every office that I walk into. Maybe a no bullshit shirt, but I, I think that's a great, um, great explanation of just it being part of the DNA, like as far as a sign up on the wall. So good. Thank you for that. Uh, and if I may add, you know, <clears throat> one thing that uh, that definitely uh, I agree is that, you know, uh, fear kills speed um, and kills innovation. Um, because if I'm an engineer and if I know that if I'm failing by some reason, because again, because uh, we are all humans, I'm getting into trouble, I'm going to double check everything. Uh, and I'm going to be afraid of, you know, of making it. So I'm going to make sure that whenever I'm doing something, it's like 100% absolutely fine and covered. Uh, and actually you, you find um, a very famous quote online that is, if everything seems under control, you're not going fast enough. Um, uh, I, I believe it was Mario Andretti that, uh, that said it, at least that's what you usually read online. And that's actually something that inspires me a lot, you know, because again, if everything is super predictable, everything is fine, uh, probably should, you should risk more. You should try to innovate more. You should, you know, kind of feel that adrenaline going through your body. Um, and, and for instance, what we usually do here at Talk that's for, for people to understand that it's not about, it is okay to fail if you learn something from it, is creating blameless postmortems. So every time we have an incident in production, okay, let's write something up. Let's documentate this. Let's learn from, from what happened. And actually, this actually has a very interesting segue because it feeds our weekly fire drills. So every time, so every week at Wednesdays, we simulate a past incident uh, and say, okay, so let's say in 2017, in October, we had this situation. Okay, so this system is starting to fail. What are you going to do as engineer that is responding to the incident? And we recreate the entire scenario. And, and what we discovered was that not, not only people are much more confident uh, to taking up on, uh, on, on incidents, but actually people uh, understand that uh, as soon as we are a learning company, it's perfectly fine to fail. There's also this saying, if it hurts, do it more often, right? Absolutely. 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 Exactly. You do it as much as you can so that you make sure that it doesn't hurt you anymore and you go to the next very thing. Absolutely. Uh, so now pretty much closing the, um, the, the question of the benefits, I, I really enjoy the ones that we mentioned here. You know, We've talked about ownership, transparency, 
common understanding, which is beautiful. Uh, I, I really like this idea of trying to avoid to have just like one engineering looking after a system because, you know, if the engineering is sick, the system is sick. If the engineer goes on vacations, the system is on vacations, right? No one will touch it. Uh, I actually once had a colleague of mine that said, you know, if you're the only person that knows something, you just lost your right to die because <laughs> you simply can't do that or the, all the knowledge will, will go away. Uh, and that's actually something very interesting. Um, obviously, we also have quality. We have maintainability. Uh, we have the safety net, right? So it should be more than safe, okay? We, we talked about this team rotation, okay? So it will be fine for me to rotate to another team if I know that everything that I have, I have the safeties in place so that I can actually, you know, do my first commit on my very first day. Maybe if I'm lucky, I actually push stuff into production and I know that I have all the systems in place that will help me succeed on this, on this task. Um, so very, very good stuff. Um, and some other things. So, Another thing that usually uh, I've seen a lot of discussion here is regarding branching uh, versus strength-based development. So I don't think there is wrongs and rights in this one, okay? So some people really love uh, having its own branch, regardless of the frequency that you refresh it, you know, just kind of pull code to the side, you do your changes, you merge it later. Um, some other teams actually are very successful in doing directly in, in, uh, in Trunk or main, regardless of this, uh, it depends on the system that you're working with. Um, obviously you need to have some, something uh, that helps you on that, right? Like for instance, toggles and so on and so forth. Um, where, where do you stand regarding that? So do you definitely prefer branching? Are you a branching fan or you don't see things like that? Um, maybe you, Dennis, you can start. Short-lived branches integrate often, uh, deploy often to production, use feature flags. That's like the mantra that we are reciting uh, every few weeks again in one of our alignment sessions. Um, because um, the, the, the problem that we see if you have a lot of people who are working on a, on a specific product is that you all of a sudden have like this, this many branches and then you have to somehow maintain them and make sure that uh, they are always in sync. and to resolve dependencies, you might get into trouble sooner or later to really have this between branches and not the, and not the master branch. Um, okay. So um, we say that we prefer to have, to always deploy from master, to build from master okay. and to deploy from master. And uh, for this reason, only well, branching, yes, but only short-lived as much as possible. Good, good take on that. What about you, David? It's it pretty much carbon copy, to be honest. It's, it's exactly that. Yeah, branch, but get it straight back in as soon as you possibly can. And I like how your mind works. <laughs> <laughs> Yours too. No, and to be honest, you know, if, if you take it like more than one week to, to merge, your branch will be outdated. And yeah. pretty much like, you might as well just start everything uh, over again. Uh, otherwise, it will be just, it will be really, really hard. That's usually my, my take on that. Um, cool. Um, so, I think that we are pretty much almost at the end. Uh, I really would like to make two last questions before we, we close and, and I, I pass the ball back to Ryan. Um, the first one is, have you ever faced any like big challenge to, to implement uh, or stick into engineering practices? You know, let's say for instance, you're an advocate of test-driven development, for instance, and you know what, the team actually pushed that back because they didn't see value of that or any other sort of practice. Have you ever been super successful doing that? Um, where do you stand regarding this? Uh, maybe you, David, you can start. Do you have anything that's, that's been challenging you? Um, I don't think, I, I tend to be led by the engineers more than anything, really. I, I think they're the ones that have to, to work with these concepts. And I think 
it's it's a little unfair of me to come in and try and force something onto them that isn't going to work. I've got more of a kind of strategic point of view on where I think we should go, but more on the on the real sort of on the groundwork. Um, that's down to them. I provide them with a safety net to allow them to try out new techniques or new methods, but it's it's much more down to them to decide what they actually want to do to get work into production. So, I mean, they, they do, we do a lot of heavy testing. Obviously we're providing libraries for, you know, pretty much every language out there and hundreds of thousands of customers. So we have to make sure that everything is as clean as it possibly can be before it goes out. But to be honest, their, their sort of professional integrity takes care of that anyway. You know, nobody is, is sloppy in the way that they work. So I don't have to be too authoritarian with with what I want them to use. It's it's very much how they find is an efficient way to work and a more comfortable way for the kind of the this kind of makeup of that team. They they work as a unit and then they'll they'll decide internally. Someone will come up with a proposal and then they will work through it together to decide if it's going to work or not. I'm I'm there to mop up mistakes afterwards and make sure that they can kind of be free to try these things, but it's it's very much it's, it's an engineering-led company, you know that from, yeah. from day one the CEO is an engineer, so it's always been engineering-led. So as long as they've got the space to make those mistakes and make those trials, then that's that's the way that we're going to go forwards. Great, great. What about you, Dennis? Um, for me, um, well, ninety-eight um, percent the same of what 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 David said. Um, there are also certain topics where you can never really reach the 100 percent um one thing would be for example again transparency is one of my favorite topics um by the way uh transparency also in terms of product um, um we are ad we are advocating in the engineering management team at solaris bank for um metrics and kpis um just to make sure that um also the teams themselves understand fully the end-to-end -end process of their product, because you, um, in in our case, we oftentimes have like this technical solution in the front that is used by our partners, and then sometimes you have some processes in the back where you have banking ops people who need to do stuff, right, or who need to look at certain cases, and so it's important to to advocate for 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 the full picture so that everyone really has a look at the full picture of the product, and. Um, so there are certain things that I think are important that um, um, we keep mentioning them. We keep reminding people that it's important to do certain things. These are like, princip uh, like principles that we apply in the engineering, in, in, in the whole engineering team. Like, for example, that we are containerizing everything, that no one should start deploying scripts somewhere on some server. It's just the way how we do it. Um, but overall, I would say um, the, the, the teams themselves know best how to reach their goals and how to fulfill all the requirements that many stakeholders put on them. So that would be actually like the one part where I would say this is something you, you will never be finished with it. You, there will always be topics that come in from, from the organization, from the company that you need to explain, that you need to put into context. And that you need to repeat over and over again, but it's fine, and that's exactly the, the fun of it, actually. <laughs> very well, very well. Um, so we are pretty much about to end. Um, 
so usually uh, I really love to ask people to to give one advice to to our audience. You know, one engineering advice. If you could, you could only give one. Uh, so you can imagine yourself, you know, with a lovely cup of coffee in front of you, or maybe a pint, depending on the hour of the day. Um, so if let's say we were in a conversation and you could give one advice to to everyone that is listening to us in terms of engineering, Dennis, which which advice would that be? Um, so if you were to start a company that would grow quickly, um, probably make sure you have values on which you um, um, base your decisions and your, and your strategies on and um, take care of your onboarding process. Wow. Good one. Very, very good one. <laughs> what about you, David? That's, that's difficult to top. Um <laughs> I would say that the one thing for everyone to, to think about is, is just the fact that it's nothing's ever finished. It changes the only constant in all of this. Um, every business and every team is going to go through multiple inflection points all the way through its lifetime. And what you start with is definitely not going to be what you end with. And, and very, very early on, your your goals and your values are going to change as well. I think when when you're very very early stage and you don't really understand who your customers are at the time, quality is not as important as it's going to be as you grow. And the type of engineers that you take early on in the career, early on in the development of the company, are going to be different to the ones that you get at, at Series A and Series B and so on. You know, it's a, it's a different it's a different type, and the company is going to continually change. But that's how it should be. You know, change is something that should never be feared. Change is something that should be embraced. Lovely. I couldn't agree more. Back to you, Ryan. That's it. All right. So here's where we're at. We've got a lot of stuff going on. And I'd like to draw your attention to this little person right here. And if you can notice, it's short hair in the front, long hair in the back. Now, we call those a mullet. You guys, are you familiar with a mullet is? Right? Yeah. Business in front, party, party in the back. In right? You got Nice and nice and short here and party in the back. So as a non-techie listening to this conversation, I was thinking to myself, how does this all fit into somebody who's maybe not engineering based, not a programmer? And it, I feel like the way that you've described your culture, everybody has the freedom to grow their hair or the way they program them a certain way, right? They have, they have a business front though. Like to some extent you have the values, you have the morals. Everybody knows that in the front, they're looking clean cut. But when you flip it around, they're able to grow their hair out. They're able to get it a little bit long, have their own party. Uh, it, it may be dependent on the team. Maybe you have two people working together. But every month the hair grows, and every month you have to get the decision to get it cut. So you're letting people literally grow their hair out. Uh, and then when mistakes are made, hair gets cut back down. But I just see this ability of each person in their engineering best practices taking uh, small decisions about the way that they present themselves, which is analogous to their code. So that's, that's how I decipher it all. As I imagine all of your engineers with a mullet, right? Party in the, wait, business in front, party in the back. So there's a bit of autonomy to it. There's a bit of, um, you know, individuality to it. Uh, there is transparency because everybody can see what's going on. But at the end of the day, it, it is a teamwork that, that everyone is individual enough to have their own ownership but collectively enough that they can all still somewhat look the same while keeping their individual selves. So that's it. When I start my engineering company, everybody is going to be able to have mullets. Like that's just going to be it. Business in the front, party in the back, do whatever you want behind the computer as long as the code works. 
and we know how to run these fire drills all together. So that, that's that's in my brain how it works out. But I, I this has been interesting from a non-technical to see how really the best practices just come back to transparency, trust, and a little bit of freedom uh, with the opportunity to fail. So for those of you who are tech or non-tech, now you have some new best practices for your best practices bag. If you like this episode, definitely check out more at scaleupvalley.com. And I would encourage you to reach out to these gentlemen, find them on LinkedIn, find them online, follow their companies, and make this be the first point in a series of dots that make a line to help you connect the dots with your company as you decide to grow. Because remember, we all grow our hair. It's just a matter of how we cut it and how we represent it and how that represents us as a larger team. <laughs> all right, here's to getting haircuts and best practices in software. You guys are great, and we will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks.